morning. Um, we have got to the third of a series that we've been doing. We've already done this in the evening services and a series on creation as part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My title for this morning is The Hope for Groaning Creation. Um, hence those two readings that Anne wonderfully read. And really, uh, this is a one-point sermon, uh, which is that creation is vital to our understanding of the gospel. If you want three points, like we often do as good evangelicals, they are the following. God loves the world, God loves humankind, and God loves justice. They're in there somewhere. You will find them. Um, and they, they, I have no sub-points like Simon. It's just one long ramble. Now, um, many, many years ago, I stood at the entrance to the Serengeti Game Reserve in Tanzania, and I experienced one of those moments which was pure and undiluted joy. It's the kind of moment that it's quite hard to put words around. It was like an epiphany. My heart just flooded with hope about everything, and I felt absolutely one with God. I really felt myself being filled with his spirit again, and I do believe that Psalm 19 says that creation tells the glory of God, and I think creation is often the context for a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Certainly it was for me at that moment. I felt it was a very thin place between heaven and earth, and the beauty of it felt absolutely overpowering, dazzling, and wonderful. I thought, surely the Lord is in this place. I've had lots of other moments before then and since then, um, but they're rare enough for me to really notice them when they happen. I had, we were away, Charlie's already said we were away last week in one of our favorite places, and certainly I had that kind of a moment on the Pembrokeshire coast in a place that I love very much. Tracy Emin, the artist, famously said, I felt you and I knew you loved me. And that's often how I feel on these occasions, even though theologically, of course, I know that God loves me all the time. I think there are very few people who are completely impervious to this kind of spiritual apprehension, even people who are very broken. Charlie referred two weeks ago in sermon number one of this series of four to uh, how what God's treatment for Job in his distress and despair was, which was really at the end of the book in the last four chapters to show him at great length the beauty and diversity and extraordinariness of creation which brought Job to a place of resolution. And many of us in here this morning, I believe, would testify to the power of creation or nature to calm us and refresh us, to inspire us, to revive us and encourage us. I've got five photographs here, Ruth, if you're ready to show. Just examples of this. Let's have the first one. You make the first picture come. That, that actually is where we were last week. <coughs> and then the next one is, these are just, this is in Macedonia. Some of us have been to um, this little pearl of a place called Ochred. They're just pictures of the glory of God. They're tiny, so in a way, perhaps they can't speak to us as they would if we were standing actually in them this morning. Next one, that's in Switzerland, where, of course, there are many views of glorious mountains. Next one. That is in South Africa. And one more, Ruth. Anybody know where that is? Shout loud. Yep, the Botanical Gardens right here in Oxford. 
and I think there may be one more. No, just me. Um, <laughs> lovely, bit of creation. Now, uh, we also know, we see those beautiful photographs, but we also know, we're very well aware, many, many of us, that creation is groaning, as we've just heard read. Or to put it in a different way, we're in an environmental crisis. We've got diminishing natural resources, we're burning our fossil fuels, we're looking at global warming, we're seeing desertification, and all these things are taking their toll. So I'm going to show you four different pictures of the same, not the same places, but the same world. Ruth, would you like to bring... And this is a very different view of what is happening in our planet, on our planet. Next one. This is the melting of the ice. And the next one. This is flooding that usually affects poor, the poor more than the wealthy. And the last one. And there is the kind of um, pollution of the seas and the waters that cause disease and all the consequences of it in all kinds of places. But this passage in Romans tells us that there is great hope for us. And in this passage that Anne read, Paul is working with ideas that any Jew would have recognized and understood because he's talking about the present age and the glory that will be coming in the age to come. And Jewish thought, of course, divided time into two sections, this present age and the age to come. And the present age was seen to be wholly bad, subject to sin and death and decay. And out of the return of Jesus would come one day a new world and a new age to come. So the renovation of the world was one of the great Jewish thoughts. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, writes Isaiah in chapter 65, verse 17, without any explanation to go with it. But the dream of a renovated world was very dear to the Jews, and there are lots of intertestamental writings that demonstrate this with glorious names like the Apocalypse of Baruch and the Sibylline Oracles. Don't you want to read them? But here in Romans chapter 8, Paul endows creation with consciousness. He thinks of nature longing for the day when sin's dominion would be broken and death and decay would be gone and God's glory would come. And with great imaginative insight, he says that the state of nature is even worse than the state of men. Man had sinned deliberately at the beginning, but nature was subjected involuntarily to the effects of that sin. We read in Genesis 3, 17, "'Cursed is the ground because of you,' says God to Adam." So here Paul sees nature waiting for liberation from the death and decay that man's sin has brought into the world, our sin if you like. And we see that the sufferings and glory of nature and humanity are integrally related to each other. And that's perhaps part of my great burden here this morning. Both are groaning and suffering now and both will be set free together. One of the reasons I think the environment is difficult or even annoying for us as Christians is that we think of ourselves as being separate from it. Wendell Berry, a, a well-known environmental activist, a cultural critic, an academic, a poet, and a farmer, very interesting combination, uh, said in a conversation which was entitled Creation Care in the Great Economy, he said this, the problem with the word environment is that it, is that it means surroundings. A much better word would be ecosphere, because the life support system depends on non-living as well as living things. Or we could call it the world, or the local ecosystem. 
or we could call it the local neighborhood, including its human and non-human inhabitants. But, he says, you can't draw a line between an organism and its environment for the reason that organisms don't just live in their environment, the environment also lives in them. They mutually participate in the community of microorganisms, but organisms also breathe, eat, excrete, and so on. So there's no division. You can kill an organism, but unless you took its body out of the ecosystem, there would still be participation because the ecosystem would claim that body and recycle it. So the idea of the environment as we use it is a false idea. And we could ask the question, where do we think we are when we suddenly decide that we'll apply our interest and help to the environment? Where are we exactly when we make that decision? So I am saying this morning that I think in order to understand our relationship with creation, we have to understand that we're part of it. Eugene Peterson uh, famously wrote the message, the Bible, the version, the message of the Bible. He says, the Latin words humus, meaning soil or earth, and homo, human being, have a common derivation from which we also get our word humble. This is the genesis origin of who we are, dust. Dust that the Lord God used to make us as a human being. If we cultivate a lively sense of our origin and nurture a sense of continuity with it, who knows, says Peterson, we may also acquire humility. Just coming back to Romans chapter 8 for a minute, verse 19 talks about eager expectation, and two commentators with very different personalities uh, talk about eager expectation in different ways. One of them, the rationalist, says it's from the Greek word apokaradokia, which means to wait with the head raised and the eye fixed on the point of the horizon from which the expected object is to come. I don't know if you can guess who that is. It's John Stott. Very clear and precise. And then <coughs> Barclay, who's a much more emotional commentator, says, eagerly searching the distance for the first signs of the dawn break of glory. But what this verse is telling us, whoever commentates, comments on it, is that there is hope and not resignation. And I think often when we think about the environment, it's just too big, and we do feel resigned, and we think, right, I'll concentrate on lots of other things. The environmental movement, of course, has often been accused of being the bearer of bad news and prophesying doom and gloom for mankind. And it's true that without the hope offered by the Christian perspective of a renovated or renewed creation, because the Greek word that is translated uh, new means actually renewed, renewed. What else should we expect? Many of you know that we personally, and some of us here are friends of Arosha, the Christian conservation organization that was recently represented in September at the World Conservation Congress in Honolulu. And for the first time in the history of the Congress, a conservation and spirituality stream was included. Of course, all the religions of every kind, sensible and not sensible, were represented. But what this meant was that Arosha's founder, Peter Harris, was one of the panel speakers. And he was thus given the privilege of injecting the message of hope, which is the gospel of Christ, into that really, in a, you know, overall secular gathering. He began by acknowledging that there were a lot of misapprehensions about Christianity because of what he called the toxic gospel. He said, imagine a gospel genetically modified by the DNA of consumerism. The people there like that. Consumerism is a god of today, and tragically, it's worshipped 
in the Christian church through the message that stuff, the more stuff we have, the happier we will be. And there are many powerful voices in the church worldwide that preach this message, and not solely in Pentecostal streams. And of course, it's a religious belief with no empirical proof to substantiate its claim at all, because deep down in ourselves, we all know that things don't make us happy. We know that good relationships and sweet interchanges are what make us happy. I'm just going to play you a two-minute extract from Peter Harris's uh, contribution, which of course went to the whole gathering. If and you could bring that what Christian, and explain what Christian theology is and isn't. First of all, it's, it's just a quick run through. I do read biblical Hebrew, so trust me, there's some scholarship behind this. Um, first of all, we understand everything is not around us. Everything is the handiwork of a loving God. And Psalm 24 and verse 1 says that the earth, Ha'eretz, is the Lord's. So it's not ours, it's not natural resources, it's not even environment. We have difficulty living with this language because it puts the human story right in the middle of things. For the Christian, it is Christ at the heart of his creation and it's this wonderful gift to us, of course, ecosystem services. But its meaning is to worship God. It is sacred, it is holy, because it's God's handiwork. So there's a huge consolation ethic right there. Secondly, what's wrong with it? 3,000 years before the words marine crisis were ever heard, the prophet Hosea wrote that it was the broken relationship with God which resulted in lying, murder, stealing, those human abuses that Sally mentioned. And then Hosea goes on to say, therefore, the land mourns and the fish of the sea and the birds of the air are dying. Achim Steine, your former Director General, said to me at the World Conservation Congress in Bangkok in 2004, what was difficult for him to say, which is that essentially, it's not, as you were saying, a technical problem that we have. We have a human problem in the Anthropocene. And Achim said, it's changing people that is at the heart of our task. It's changing people that is at the heart of our task. So what transforms people is actually what they believe and what they value. And as Christians, we believe that there is something fundamentally broken about us before we become Christians, which is our relationship with God. And the devastation of our human and social relationships inevitably leads to the devastation of our ecological relationships, and that may account, of course, for what we are seeing across the globe. Gus Speth, a leading US environmental lawyer and advocate, re recently acknowledged this, and he says the following, I used to think that top global environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a spiritual and a transformational, and a cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. I don't think he was saying that scientists don't know how to do that if that's what they believe. I think he was just saying it's not fundamentally a scientific problem. Um, just to give you an example of this kind of thing, uh, the, con the connection really between um, what's going on 
in the planet and our, our contribution to it. Ruth, if you could bring up the slide of the... This is a quotation from a book called Planted. I heartily recommend it, written by the Canadian leader of the Canadian Arosha Centre. Um, a chilling documentary called Manufactured Landscapes records slag heaps, e-waste dumps and factories all staggering in their scope in remote Chinese provinces. Children and women are seen assembling and deassembling toxic electronic equipment without the benefit of safety gear as simple as gloves or protective eyewear. Edward Brown in his book Our Father's World recounts the implications of corporate bottom lines which encourage multinationals to locate their factories in countries with little or no environmental regulations. Good for consumers upwind in the more developed countries that receive cheap goods, but disastrous in terms of the toxic pollution for those living near the factories. For example, in 2005, a single toxic spill into the Songhua River in China involved over 100 tons of benzene, an industrial solvent and carcinogen. Now that's just one among probably thousands and thousands of examples that you could pick out. It has also been said that the environmental message is like the Christian message without hope. And hope here in this room is the treasure that we carry. And I hope, I hope that you're beginning to see as we explore through these weeks our relationship with creation through the series, how very evangelistic our understanding becomes and how absolutely critical it is that we recognize and address our own unconscious bias towards consumerism and materialism. Let's not throw stones at far-off African Pentecostals who've been caught up in the prosperity or toxic gospel. The message of prosperity has nearly always originated in the West, where we've always had plenty before we even begin in world terms. So the Christian understanding of hope is that God loves his creation and is committed to it. And the gospel message itself begins with creation and it ends with the new or renewed creation. It does not begin with people in trouble or end with people. And the implications of this are quite vast for us. They are that there is no us and them. Business is not bad and green initiatives good. All of us are created. We can't have a spirituality of us and them. Paul preaching in Athens to a context just as diverse as the Hawaii Congress says, we are his offspring. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That's in Acts 17. The human race could turn things around for the planet together. And that's why creation care is a lifestyle issuing from values and beliefs. It's not a sort of addendum to church community life uh, about recycling or, uh, and caricatured by a sort of eco, the typical eco-freak. You know, I eat more muesli than you, my sandals are more threadbare than yours. You know, all that kind of stuff that we mock uh, the environmentalists uh, with. In fact, I believe it's really central to the gospel mandate because in Genesis 1... And two, God instructs Adam and Eve to organize and care for creation. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And his message in Romans is full of hope too. The groaning creation is going to be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's what we heard read. 
The record of the church, of course, has been depressing because we have often made the gospel anthropocentric. If you take John 3.16, which reveals that salvation comes to mankind from believing in Jesus, how majestically and enthrallingly simple, why do we make it so complicated? But this verse says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It does not say, for God so loved humankind. And the, in, the implication here is that there's an integral link, as I said before, between our response to God and the state of creation. Uh, and it's all over the Bible. And I'm just going to, whoops, that's right, I don't need that anymore. Um, I'm just going to read a few verses from Isaiah, because once you start seeing this, at almost every page, you've, you'll find some reference to uh, creation and the place that we live, as it were. Just these few verses from one page in Isaiah 32 to 4. When the Spirit is poured on us from on high, and the desert, the desert will become a fertile field, and the fertile field will seem like a forest, justice will dwell in the desert, and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace, the effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence. Another verse just uh, across the page, talking about something different. A treaty is broken, its witnesses are despised, no one is respected, the land mourns and wastes away. And then the next page. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. So you see that man and his uh, and surroundings are not really divided in the way that we often choose to divide them. I think another example of our propensity to be egocentric as mankind is the calming of the storm, a parable we all know very well in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we nearly always hear it exposited as an example of how Jesus rescues us from our internal storms and as an exhortation not to leave, lose our peace when we're perhaps in trouble or stressed or anxious. Things are difficult and dangerous. And of course, that is true, but it's only partial because these verses also demonstrate Jesus' lordship over the whole of creation. Verse 27 of Matthew 8 says, The men were amazed and, says, what, and said, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Having said all that, everything is not doom and gloom at the moment. In the same 30 years that we've lost half of vertebrate life on earth, there has been an extraordinary change in the Christian church. And I do want to pay tribute to the work of Arosha here because it certainly has been a key player in this change. Another powerful and influential voice is that of Pope Francis expressed on this very subject in his majestic and moving encyclical letter called Laudato Si, uh, Care for Our Common Home. And he delivered that in 2015 in St. Peter's, Rome. Uh, at Pentecost Sunday, Laudato Si, meaning praise to you, from St. Francis of Assisi's canticle, Laudato Si, mi signore, praise be to you, my Lord. And one other example is that the historic 2015 Paris Agreement uh, about controlling climate change, which has now had something like 198 countries uh, become signatories to it, it took effect. This is an incredibly topical subject to be talking about because that agreement actually started working two days ago on Friday the 4th of November, which is an, inc an extraordinary achievement. Um, obviously, there's a long way to go, but it's a wonderful 
thing that it has begun. However, I don't think we can just rest on our laurels and say, well, all these different voices are making an impact. Let them do it. I believe that because we're part of creation ourselves, we have an instinctive longing for nature, which we can see all sorts of evidence for if we look all over the place. I just have picked out three um, examples. Care for the Family is an, an organization that many of us are familiar with. And they organize holidays for families in pain or trouble so that they can experience the healing power of creation, people who perhaps never have an opportunity. Uh, secondly, we have a friend who founded a trust that enables school children in a deprived inner city area of London uh, similarly to go on holidays and rediscover nature, find the sea, see something that they've never had an opportunity to see before. Closer to home, our own ACT ministry here uh, has taken their members on holiday to the sea and also takes them on retreat near the Malvern Hills, which in my opinion is one of the most beautiful parts of this country that we live in. So there is a kind of impulse within us to be connected to creation. But despite all that, of course, it's still true that we have this environmental crisis. And for many, many people, this instinctive longing for nature has been silenced or suppressed, often by the pressure of poverty. And as I said earlier on, of course, it's the poor who are most affected by the plundering of the planet. But the gods of materialism and consumerism are also responsible for the atrophy in the souls of lots of people. We throw lots of things away, don't we? But have you ever asked yourself, where is away exactly? Tragically, away is plastic, enormous plastic gyres, they're called, patches in our oceans, which are the, some people say they're the size of Texas, or some people say they're the size of the US. In my opinion, even a gyre the size of this room would be a total tragedy. And away is a place that is really damaging our creation. Ruth, if you can bring up that slide just to show those, that, those white circle things, those are plastic deposits in our oceans. I don't think we really want that. We don't want that. So the data doesn't make us hopeful, but what makes us hopeful is that God cares because he loves his creation. He saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It says in Genesis 1, 31. And we uh, also love and care for his creation simply out of worship for him. We don't do this because we think we can save the world. We're too grown up for that. But because we're just there. We don't see nature and her resources as disposable capital that we can just spend till it runs out, but rather as something in which we live and move and have our being, something actually that we love. In the same way, pastorally, we might sit at the bedside of a dying person. Some of us have done that. We can't do anything. We can't stop this person dying. But we're there because we love. We're there because we know and we worship God, who is love, and we love the person. Our presence there is incarnational. On a wider scale, care of the dying does not make economic sense, but it makes complete sense on every other level because it springs from a relational foundation. Loving care is intrinsically valuable just by itself. We don't need a reason to do it. And in the same way, nature matters. The creation matters because it's intrinsically valuable. Psalm 104 is one of the earliest statements about biodiversity. 
And this is something that's proclaimed loudly throughout the whole Bible. It's one of the most beautiful hymns that you can find talking about biodiversity. It's true that if we don't have, uh, if we don't see some changes on the planet, you know it's going to be challenging to survive, but that is not the reason that it matters. It matters because, as Peter quoted in that little clip, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, from Psalm 24, and in wisdom you made them all. There are, of course, thousands and thousands of people who do care about creation, and at that Hawaii Congress there were 9,000 people from 160 different countries. But of course, to our shame, really, as Christians, not many of them uh, were there with the Christian message uh, in their heart. Anyway, I'm coming into land now, as we say, and I hope that you might see from these few thoughts how this issue is not only central to the gospel, and that the creation mandate, which is right at the beginning of our Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and following, but that it's also powerfully evangelistic if we humbly recognize that all humans are made in the image of God, whether or not they recognize it or accept it. Many, many people, of course, who are working in these fields are working because of an impulse that God has put within them. It's just that for many of them, they haven't yet recognized, they haven't joined up the dots and realized where that impulse comes from. Because humanity is created with an instinct to help and to save and to rescue. It's deep, deep in our human psyche, and it's there because we're made in the image of God. I'm going to just finish with um, um, something that Peter Harris wrote in Christianity Today in September this year, following that time at the Congress. And then I'm going to pray and hand over to Charlie. He said this at the end, until a truly persuasive and coherent way of valuing nature captures the attention of politicians, business people, farmers and fishermen, we are likely to see the current devastating trends continue. Christians, of course, have exactly such a coherent view available to us. And there are many Christians around the world who are deeply engaged in caring for creation, but we're still just beginning. Our worship, our work, and our witness will be incomplete until our responsibility to conserve the glorious, God-given diversity of creation becomes second nature.